And thank you so much. I'm just trying to decide whether I should be worried that as my wife walked out the room, she's mouthing at me, have you seen one of our children? Um, no, I haven't. Um, so anyway, if you spot one of our children anywhere in the church, do a shout. We'll be glad to, uh, to relocate them. Well, good morning to you. A special welcome to you if you're here as a guest or a visitor. My name's Chris, Chris Brockway. I have the joy of being involved in the leadership of the church here at CBC and the real privilege of uh, continuing in our teaching series in the book of Esther, an Old Testament book. Uh, we had a bit of a break last week, if you were with us, uh, from Esther, as the Mahon family joined us all the way from Peru. Uh, weren't they brilliant in sharing about their ministry? We really enjoyed them and their children being with us at church camp as well. Such good fun and uh, brilliant to get to know them. Well, so far in our teaching series, we've seen at least four big themes come out of the book of Esther, and this morning we get a fifth. And with each of these big uh, themes, we see that there is hope in a world of despair. There's hope in a world of despair. Firstly, we've seen God's commitment to his people. Even when God's people do not deserve his covenant love, they get it anyhow. That's our first big theme. That, of course, is true for you, and it's true for me. We get what we don't deserve. That's grace. And then secondly, through this teaching series, we've heard all about the providence of God. God is a God who's sovereign. He's in control. He might sometimes be silent, but he's never absent. Even when we can't see it and we can't hear it, God is moving behind the scenes and sometimes even moving the scenes for the good of those who love him. That's what God does for me and he does for you. That's grace. And then thirdly, we've seen the calling of God's people. We find this, this woman Esther in the palace as the queen for such a time as this by the will of God. God delights in using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's true for you and me. That's grace. And then fourthly, we've seen that God is the God who brings the hope of incredible reversals. God can turn our ashes into crowns of beauty. God can turn our mourning into gladness. God can take our despair and turn it into praise. When everything seems to be without hope, God is a God who often intervenes. That's grace. And then fifthly this morning, we discover that God will ultimately deal with Satan and his schemes, and we discover that judgment is coming. God's grace will lead me home. God's grace will lead me home, even as we think this morning about the theme of judgment. Yes, that's our topic. Sounds really encouraging and exciting, doesn't it? We're going to be thinking specifically about God's judgment over you and me, and in fact, the whole of humanity. Anyone wishing they'd stayed at home? A few people watching online have suddenly got a dodgy internet connection. Oh, I lost it. What a tragedy. Well, some of what I've got to say this morning might feel slightly uncomfortable, but here's my encouragement to you this morning. Hang on to the end, because hope is coming, because we find hope even in God's judgment. Of course, judgment is what we want, isn't it? For the things that other people have done wrong, but we'd rather avoid it ourselves. That's the truth of the matter. Do you know what I mean? Do you remember as a kid, some of us who are old enough, don't worry, there's a more contemporary illustration as well, cod liver oil, that awful liquid on a spoon. Didn't you delight in watching your siblings gag as they had to swallow that awful liquid, but you would go out of the way to avoid that punishment yourself? There's something quite twisted about that. 
Here's the contemporary example, road rage. To my shame, I did not call down blessings from heaven yesterday on a wonderful man who pulled out in front of my car, and I missed him by millimeters. I wish the fire of hell upon that man yesterday. There is a reason why I don't have a fish on the back of my car. <laughs> but of course, this is also true. When it happens the other way around, and I'm the person who pulls out on somebody else, well, I rebuke that individual for being so judgmental and unreasonable in their attitude about my driving ability. Maybe you can identify. There's something hardwired, isn't there, into the DNA of human nature that cries out for judgment, especially when someone commits an offense against us or perhaps equally as bad when someone commits an offense against somebody that we love. Why is that our heart's cry, that natural response? Because I think it's because we bear, albeit brokenly and falteringly, the image of God. As those of us who are made in the image of God, such a cry is our natural response because it simply mirrors the response that God has every single time he sees injustice and every single time he sees sin. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19 says this, There are six things the Lord hates. There are seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Six things he hates, seven things that are detestable. When we see children abused, our hearts cry out for judgment. Of course they do. But God's heart breaks even more. When vulnerable people are attacked in their homes, when babies are battered or neglected, our hearts cry out for justice. Of course they do. But God detests those things with a greater disgust than we could ever muster in our humanity. We long for the people who do things like that to be caught, to be punished, to be most severely punished, We do that, and it's right that we should do that. Perhaps such a heart cry is a a reminder to us that, albeit imperfectly, we're made in the image of a holy God. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Maybe when our hearts are broken, it's a sign we're becoming more like Jesus. Well, I wonder what your gut reaction is to some of the headlines that we've seen in the news just this week. Here's the first one. How do you respond to this? That really was a headline in the news. It caught my attention. Jesus joins Arsenal from Man City in 45 million pound deal. That one's just a joke because they get heavy after this. The assassination of a man who is widely respected as being an outstanding leader. Just pursuing his call in politics. How does your heart respond to the actions of that individual? I think it was just on Monday in the news, 51 migrants found dead in a trailer. Nobody around to be held to account. 51 dead people just trying to find a better life. Of course, you can't engage in this kind of exercise without thinking about the Ukraine war. 21,000 alleged war crimes. What's your response? Is it shock? Victorial revenge, disgust, a, a desire for some kind of payback, reprisal, injustice, maybe even hatred. <laughs> but there's a problem, of course. It's not only other people's sin that deserves punishment. It's not only other people's sin that God finds 
detestable. God's got a problem with my sin as well. It's annoying, isn't it? In one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, he says that the wages of sin, all sin, not just the terrible sins of others, but even and including my more trivial sin, the wages of sin, all sin, is death, says Paul. That kind of smarts, doesn't it, when we hear that? Wouldn't it be much better if that scripture verse simply just said the wages of all the really bad sins, the ones that other people do, is death? But that's not what it says. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, my goodness me, he promised us hope, and so far all he's dished up is despair. But don't worry, the hope is coming, and it's coming in an abundance. And anyway, hope feels all the more better when it's contrasted to despair. Of course, what most of us do when we want to make ourselves feel better about our sin or we want to get ourselves off the hook is we compare ourselves to armed robbers or to child abusers or to that neighbor that we've got who lives next door a few doors down who's the neighbor from hell. And then we can safely conclude, you know, it's okay, I'm actually a saint. I've got a halo compared to them, compared to those terrible people in the race of life. Do you know what? It's a photo finish between me and Mother Teresa. But then I compare myself to Jesus, the sinless, faultless son of God, and I realize just how far behind I am in the race. I realize just how far fallen, uh, how short, short I've fallen. The playwright and the novelist uh, Somerset Morgan once said this. He said, if I wrote down every thought I've ever thought and every deed I've ever done, then men would call me a monster of depravity. Isn't that brilliant? A monster of depravity. Well, the Apostle Paul said something very similar about himself, although his message actually was a bit more hope-filled. He said, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body which is subject to death? It's all very depressing, isn't it? But thankfully, Paul is a theologian, and Paul comes uh, with a different message in, in, in response to that initial thing he said, and here's your appetizer of hope. Paul's theology doesn't stop there. He recognizes, yes, that his sin deserves judgment in the eyes of a holy God. But then in his very next breath, he goes on to say, here's the solution to humanity's greatest problem, and it's Jesus. What a wretched man I am. Yes, who will rescue me from this body which is subject to death and deserves judgment? Thanks be to God, he says. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. The solution to humanity's greatest problem, sin, a rebellion against a holy God, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Phew. I suppose we better look at the story of Esther. So far in this uh, story, we've encountered this, this man called Haman. He's the prime minister. He, he's a power-hungry prime minister. He's a prime minister who lacks integrity. He's a prime minister who will do whatever it takes to stay in office. What you're giggling at, I can't think of anyone like that at all. But he's a man who gets thoroughly judged by the king, a human king, for his sin, for his rebellion against God. Now, if ever there was a wretched, miserable sinner who deserves every bad thing that God could ever throw at him, it's this man, Haman. Well, a quick reminder of what's happened in the story before, because if you don't know it, you'll be lost. So God's people, the Jews, they find themselves in exile, and that's worth underlining. They're in exile because of their own rebellion against God. And then this Jewish woman, Esther, finds herself becoming queen in a very influential position with the king. The villain in the story, Haman, is plotting genocide against God's people, the Jews. And through this incredible series of God incidences, 
Esther ends up asking the king to put an end to Haman's wicked plan. And in this bizarre reversal of fortunes, Haman ends up being publicly humiliated in front of everyone, which of course uh, makes a narcissist all the madder. And that brings us to Esther chapter 7. Let's read it together if you've got a Bible. Esther chapter 7, we're going to read from verses 1 through to 10. So it says, The king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, more wine, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because such a distress would not justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile man, Haman. Imagine her pointing at him, this, sorry, Paul, this vile man, Haman. And then it says, then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage. He left his wine and he went out of the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg the queen for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen whilst he's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching up to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. It's pretty gruesome stuff, isn't it? So Haman finds himself in this really bad situation. Finally, after years of narcissistic, self-centered power tripping, this man's sin has finally caught up with him. He gets judged by the king, and arguably some form of justice gets delivered here in this moment as he's brutally impaled on a spike that Haman had actually had built for this man Mordecai. And then suddenly, finally in the story, Esther gets to sigh a big sigh of relief that in the economy of God, her masterful plan to save God's people from destruction pays off. Now, I guess we could say in response to all of this, well, hang on a minute, that really doesn't sound very Christian, does it? Wishing that somebody would be be impaled on a spike, wishing even judgment over another person. Surely Esther or the king at this point should have just forgiven and forgotten. Wouldn't that have been the godly thing to do? Isn't that what a loving person does? They just forgive and they just forget. That's not loving. And actually, judgment isn't opposed to love. It's actually an expression of love, especially when judgment is being dished out by a perfect, holy, righteous God. What if a holy God didn't hold people accountable? What if a perfect, holy, righteous God never did any judging? Would that really be the actions of a loving God? Would that really be loving? Imagine for a moment we've got a change of scenario here in this room. We're a courtroom right now, and someone who's just been convicted of having been proven guilty of murder is brought in before the judge. That's me. 
And the judge just simply says, well, whatever. Do you know what? I'm feeling extra loving today, and so I'm just going to let you off the hook. I'm going to let you off scot-free. It's your lucky day because I'm feeling loved up. Well, we would be rightly outraged because that is not what good judges do. Such a response wouldn't be just at all, would it? And such a response really isn't loving. It's not loving to the victims and their families to let someone off scot-free. And in truth, it's not really loving to the perpetrator either, just validating their bad behavior and not holding them accountable. We want judgment. We cry out for judgment. We want a God who judges awful people like Haman and Putin and blank, put whatever name you want to put in there. We just don't really want to be subject to that judgment ourselves. Now, this cry for judgment is normal, but my problem, maybe this is your problem as well, is that we're just not good at handling our anger and dispensing what we might call proportionate justice. In my household, especially when I'm dishing it out, the crime doesn't, or the punishment doesn't normally fit the crime. Harry, because you didn't come for tea when I called, you've now lost your phone for the next 12 months. Is that reasonable? Is that proportionate? No, but I'm a broken human being, and I don't do justice well. But when God judges, God's judgment is always in balance. It's always just. It's always perfect. It is always unquestionably right. So tempting, isn't it, when we come to a story like this in Esther, to to look at the terrible sins of this man Haman, and maybe even the king, and to point them out, and to headline these as the worst sins that could ever happen. But The trouble is with this story is that Haman isn't the only sinner in the story. We discover that more next week. In different ways and to differing degrees, Mordecai, the king, and Esther, they've all compromised. In fact, Mordecai and Esther have arguably been manipulative in this story. You see, the Jews in this story actually aren't any better than the Persians who are all around them. That's the very reason why they were sent into exile in the first place is because they weren't honoring God. The difference is is that they belong to God, and that's what makes all the difference here in the story. The Bible says this in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin earns in the eyes of a holy God judgment. As Romans 6.23 puts it, the wages of sin is death. And actually, if that's where the Scriptures ended, it would be completely hopeless. I'd have nothing encouraging to say from this moment onwards. But there's a but in the text, and it's perhaps one of the most important buts in the whole of Scripture. The wages of sin is death, but, 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 but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Paul is speaking here about a physical death, yes, but he's speaking to about a spiritual death, about an eternal separation from God, and that's hell. That's hell. Christ, even though he was innocent, endured judgment for us, for you and for me, so that we wouldn't have to face it. In the story of Esther, we see the bad guy get the gallows whilst the the good guys go free. Well, here's the good news. The truly good guy, Jesus, the perfect one, gets the gallows, the cross, whilst the bad guy, that's me and maybe that's you, get to walk off into eternal freedom. This is amazing grace. 
Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. Jesus dies in our place on the cross. God is still righteous. Justice is still being served for the sins. A penalty has been paid, but we go free and we get to to live on. This is unfailing love. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in this, is that whilst I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That's how much he loved us, that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world... For God so loved Chris that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. A couple of weeks ago I pointed out there's always a challenge with the Old Testament is to look and to see the signposts that there are to Jesus. And in our story Esther is pointing ahead to a much greater hero, a greater mediator, a greater intercessor. She's pointing forward to the God-man Christ Jesus. But in our story too it's There's a signpost here to another greater enemy who's called Satan. Think about this for a moment. Satan had his foolproof plan all set up. The gallows were made. They were there ready for Mordecai to die on. Think about the story of Jesus. The cross was there. Jesus went up onto that cross and he died on that cross. And everyone thought, well, it's finished. This great plan of salvation, it's failed. But ironically, the death and then the resurrection of Jesus was the death blow to Satan, to sin, and to death. On that cross, the great enemy was defeated. He's been mortally wounded. Sure, he still causes a bit of trouble here and there, all over the place. But ultimately, he's destroyed. The battle has been won. What a hope. And it's a hope that's made possible through Jesus. God makes a way for us where there was otherwise no way. That vile Haman. That vile Chris. Yeah. That vile Kay. I enjoyed that. The sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God because he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That vile Chris, yes. <laughs> that wretched man, Chris, yes. That monster of depravity, Chris, why not? But you know, it's okay. But because of Jesus. You see, I'm not going to be judged by a fallen earthly king. But I'm going to be judged by a good, good father who's made a way for me. I'm going to be judged by a father who's given me a perfect savior in Jesus Christ. It's going to be okay. There's hope, even in judgment, when we've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. For all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God, but because of Jesus. We pray together. Lord, I want to thank you so much this morning that we can find hope even in a theme like this, but because of Jesus.
Thank you so much, Lord, that we can look at a story like this. We can even identify people like ourselves. People who we know have fallen short of the glory of God, and we can still find hope because you're a good, good father. Thank you, Lord, that you've made a way where there was no way. Because of Jesus. Why don't we take a moment just in the silence of your own heart and you can pray a prayer as God leads you in the silence of your own heart this morning. Why don't you, maybe for the first time or maybe for another time, commit your life to Christ afresh. Because he's the one who's defeated death and sin. He's the one who's made a way for us to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you that you see and you know our hearts more than we even know them ourselves. And this morning we choose to be recipients of the grace that you give abundantly, lavishly, through Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. While I was still